People are strange. People get ready. People. People who need Hey everybody and welcome back to People with Barry or People with Barry Quarter. I guess I haven't really decided which, but this is a podcast that I conceived, I don't know, eight months ago, maybe a year ago, as a way to focus on some of the people that I've met via my job as a reporter with the Chattanooga Times Free Press or just in general and now today just to share some stories, some of the things that I've been able to do because when I started thinking about who I wanted to talk to and started putting it on paper, it's pretty remarkable and I want to be very, very clear up front that I have always known that I have had a charmed, blessed, lucky, whatever you want to call it, experience. I have I have been able to sit on a couch or across a table on a phone with some of the biggest names in the world, to be quite honest. And I don't for a minute think that it's because of me. I think it's because of the position with the paper. I know for a fact, and I remind myself every second of every day that when that no longer that connection is no longer there, then those phone calls and those opportunities go away. So I want to make that very clear. This is not intended to be about like me and what I've done, but more about holy cow, what a what an opportunity. <laughs> and I think as you hear some of the stories, you'll see that I'm sincere when I say that because I've done some incredibly stupid things and some silly things and they're all part of the all part of the same story. So I hope when you hear it you think, man, what a doofus. How lucky he was. But I think there's stories that are worth sharing and that's what I want to do here. I don't know who's going to listen. I don't care if it's just my kids. That's awesome. And again, I don't mean it as a vanity piece so much as a, wow, I can't believe that happened. But anyway, let's just start at the beginning. One of the things that people ask me is, how did you get into this business? And also, I've had opportunity to speak at a couple of high school career days, and the same questions come up and the same answers come up. So let's just start there. When I was at in high school, I can very distinctly re- remember telling my high school English teacher, a woman named Becky Jordan, who is still a friend. I, I, I consider her a friend. I, she may not say the same, but one of the coolest ladies ever. She's uh, very much now into the arts and, and was then as well. But I can remember telling her that there was nothing she was teaching me that I would ever use in a career that I would ever have. Again, this is probably my junior year of English junior year and some senior year. I think I had her twice. Gerunds and nouns and verbs and adverbs and diagramming sentences. Oh my God, diagramming sentences. There was never going to be part of anything that I was going to do beyond that year. Also, the idea of writing theme papers, just stupid. Never understood it. 
didn't like it. In fact, I hated it. Writing at that point was just basically regurgitating. It was not being creative. I don't remember a single instance of having anything anything like a creative writing. And I don't mean that to pick on them. That's how it was set up. Looking back, whatever, you know, that's just how it was. So having said that, when I started college, uh, obviously writing was not going to be in the future. Journalism was not even on the radar. And I had a big, I had a longer list of things that I was not going to do versus things that I was interested in. And to be honest, I can't remember. I think I did one of those tests, you know, in forestry or something. I don't know. The only thing I cared about at that time was music. It's pretty much, well, that's not true. I have a lot of other interests, but at that time, basically it was music. So I just was going to class. I mean, I would just, this is why it took me six years. The first four years were a complete waste of time, a complete waste of money. But anyway, let's get to the point. So I had to take an English elective, and I think it was creative writing. I don't remember what the other choices were, but I signed up for a creative writing class, which just scared me to death. But I was lucky enough to get a guy named Mike Richards as my professor and had to write a paper. And again, you got to remember... All I knew about writing papers was you went to the library and you basically copied the Britannica and then you regurgitated it. But this was different. I had to come up with something on my own. And with the help of probably half a bottle or two of red wine, I, I came up with something that entertained me. And to my absolute shock, it got a good grade got a good grade and some encouragement from uh, Dr. Richards, who was a hoot, by the way. Dr. Richards used to love telling us stories about being in the Navy and telling us uh, just all kinds of jokes. And one of them that I'll, I'll never forget was there was a poetry competition. And the two finalists, one was a guy from Harvard and another was a country bumpkin type. And they both reached the finals and they were given a word and they had to create a poem based on that word on the spot. And the word was Timbuktu. The Harvard graduate got up, cleared his throat in his high-minded, highbrow sort of way, said, across the windswept desert sands traveled a lonely caravan. Men on camels, two by two, destination Timbuktu. The crowd rose and gave the man a big standing ovation. Then the country guy got up, stepped to the podium, and began. Tim and I, a hunting went, found three girls in a pop-up tent. They were many, and we were few. So I bucked one, and Tim bucked two. And then I kept doing it and kept doing it, and I kept getting good grades, so much so that I signed up for a second semester, and I just absolutely loved it. And I couldn't believe that this stuff was coming out of my head. We may get into that later, but I'm, I'm not kidding. It was just that shocking. Uh, I would sit down at a typewriter and wonder who was coming up with this stuff. So that happened. And then, coincidentally, uh, there was a guy who used to write record reviews for the University Echo, the school paper, and I couldn't stand him. He hated everything that I loved and vice versa. And he did a he did a review of David Bowie's Let's Dance, which had just come out and basically said this guy's career is over and done and nobody cares about him. 
and he was on the cover of like Rolling Stone and Spin and four or five other magazines that very week. So I just thought this guy's an idiot. So I went to the University Echo office and I said, what do I have to do to write a review? This guy's killing me. And they said, well, here, take a couple of records, bring us back a review. And I said, what do I do with the records? They said, you get to keep them. And I thought, ooh, okay, I like this. So I did that for, I don't even remember. I know a semester, maybe two. And then the next year rolled around and I knew that staff was turning over. So I went to the editor and I said, what do I have to do to apply for this? Uh, Let me also, I started signing up for communications classes because I thought, "Eh, I don't know, maybe I can do this. And I thought radio and TV, uh, that seemed kind of along the same lines. Still, newspaper journalism was not even a consideration because that was real again that english thing (laughs) was not going to happen i didn't think i could pass the test if i'm honest and quite honestly i probably could not have passed the test anyway so all these things are happening and so i went to the university features editor and i said what do i have to do to apply and she said well you're the only one that's applied so you've got the job seriously this is the kind of thing that happens to me and so i got the job and then right around the start of school I go in and just check, walk by or whatever, and the editor says, oh, by the way, your stipend check is here. And I said, I don't even know what that is. And she said, your check, your tuition check. (laughs) I'll never forget calling my dad, who was living in Baltimore at that time, and I think I could hear him doing the cartwheels off the walls because, you know, he didn't have to pay that money anymore. So I got the rest of my career uh, paid for. That was a pretty big deal. And then I... Got a call from some label, record label, asking me, A, did I want to interview the act that was coming to the arena, which had just opened the year before, and B, did I want review tickets? Well, all I heard was ticket. So I was like, of course, to both. And I went, I was dating Kelly, who is now my wife at the time, and I thought, ooh, I'm going to have to... How do I get her a ticket? So I went to the guy, Terry Butler, who was the head of the, he was the director of the arena at the time. And I, you know, very, I thought, uh, big of me. And also, as I was, I was also petrified, said, hey, is there any way I can buy a second ticket so that my girlfriend and I can sit together? And uh, he was like, well, I tell you what, I'll go ahead and give you, I'll go ahead and give you two together. Well, I don't know why he was doing that. I think he probably was as amused as anything, but that found out there's always two together because that's what the record labels do. But anyway, once I found out that I got not only free records, but free tickets to all of the concerts, I thought, man, this is the career for me. And that's where my whole focus went from that point on. This is what I wanted to do. And so I took all of the communications, the jobs that I could get or communication classes and just thought TV and or radio is where I'm going to go and ended up getting an internship at Channel 12, which immediately led to a weekend job as a reporter and figured out pretty quickly. I think my first day on the job was like a Saturday evening. I went in and they handed me a big fat stack of time, the Chattanooga Times and Chattanooga Free Press stories and said, here, rewrite these. And this one looks like a pretty good story. So see if you can get this guy, take a videographer and see if you can get this guy to say the same thing on camera. 
just basically hold the microphone in front of his face and get him to say it. So I quickly realized that the newspaper guys were the ones doing all the real work and eventually came to realize that that's probably that. Well, let's be honest, that and the fact that at that time, all of the reporters for Channel 12, which was number three in the market, as it still is, uh, were coming in on weekends to do their resume tapes. We are a mid-sized market, 65th or so. And at that time, if you were here after 18 months, it meant you basically were going nowhere. So they were all looking to get out. So all of these things combined, I knew my girlfriend who would become my wife, my fiance. I knew she was never going to leave, never going to move. So I thought, mm-mm. TV's probably not for me. The other irony, you know, just like my stupidity of saying there's nothing in English uh, classes that I would ever use. I remember Andy Shear, who is still a reporter with the Chattanooga Times Free Press, asking me. He's a family friend from way, way back. I remember at that time he said, man, have you considered writing for a newspaper? And I said, there is no way I will ever do that. I don't know what year it was, probably 84, 85. Well, guess what? He and I are both still at the same paper. I don't know what it means. I don't care. It's just that's how I got to to where I am. I was fortunate. I got hired. And Jim Ruth was the entertainment writer at the News Free Press at the time. And I flat told him, I want your job. And he said, I know. And you'll have it when I leave. And he helped me immeasurably. And when he did leave, I got the job. So I've been there ever since. So very, very lucky. Just kind of as a teaser, you probably, I would be if you're listening, you're like, who is this guy? What are you talking about? I mean, I've had the opportunity to sit on a couch with Oprah. I've sat across the table twice from John Travolta. I've interviewed, I've had the opportunity to interview Al Gore Jr., He'd just written a book and would become vice president of the United States. I mean, it's, I think about it. I've had that chance to photograph Paul McCartney when he was at Bonnaroo, an absolute highlight of my career. I've been to 14 Bonnaroos. I've seen pretty much all of the shows during the day at the arena and reviewing them from Itzhak Perlman to Motley Crue to Aerosmith to Guns N' Roses. I mean, it's on and on and on. So, uh, it's an amazing when I like I said before when I sit and think about it it's an amazing thing and I don't know we'll talk more about it get alright so one of my favorite stories that I think about a lot based on my job I had the opportunity one of my very first trips first of all I don't travel a lot I my family we grew up we just didn't travel you know, the occasional trip back to Indiana, which I don't consider exotic. Never went south of Atlanta ever, to my knowledge. Never in my childhood went west of Memphis, to my knowledge. Probably only did that once, and I don't even think I did it as a child. North, never went north or east of Lafayette, Indiana, until my son was playing baseball, and we traveled, and we went to Louisville. I don't even know. Anyway, point being, didn't travel a lot. And so suddenly the paper, through its travel section, which was pretty vibrant at that time, had the opportunity to go. I went to the Bahamas, to Freeport, Lakaya, didn't care for it. I mean, you know, it was nice to be there, but I didn't care for it. But anyway, I was offered, once I got 
in the entertainment department with June Hatcher. Jim Ruth was still kind of there, but was transitioning out. June offered me uh, the opportunity to go on a Disney trip to New York City. Now, first of all, I'd never been on a junket, never been to New York, hadn't been on a plane since I was about 14 when my grandfather died. So, I mean, all of this was uh, pretty heavy duty for me. And I grilled June. Man, she was so patient. I had so many questions. I was convinced I was going to be mugged. I was convinced, you know, any anybody that I looked in the eye was going to basically stick a knife in me because that's just what they do in New York is what I thought at the time. And uh, And she... You know, to be fair, she didn't exactly change my mind. She was very cautious. You know, if the doorman says, don't go left, don't go left kind of thing. And don't get out of the cab until you've got your bag or don't pay the cab till you've got your bags out of the trunk or whatever. You know, so she didn't exactly make me feel terrific about it. But in any case, so I had the opportunity to go to New York for... I'm pretty sure it was Pocahontas, the junket, the movie, the film was coming out. Again, never been on a junket. So I make the flight, no problem. We had arranged, she knew a girl from Memphis, I think, from another paper that was going to be also on the junket and at the same flight time. And so we had arranged to sort of share a cab and somehow, I don't know how, but somehow I found her there at LaGuardia, no problem, which was making me feel a little bit good. But we got in the cab and she was not at all chatty, not at all friendly. I don't think we spoke, except that when we passed by Bloomingdale's, she said, oh, there's Bloomingdale's. And we got out of the car and never saw her again. So I don't know if you're listening you are not a nice person, so whatever. She also figured out that she took both of the receipts, or she took the receipt, so she got paid. The way it is, is when you go on these things, you turn in your cab receipt, and Disney gives you twice the amount back. So they pay for your forward and your return trip. Well, she got both of those, so again, not a nice person. I really don't know who her name is, but anyway... She's out of the picture, but so I checked in and I go up to my room and I order room service for lunch and it's like a 38 or $42 club sandwich. It was ridiculous. And I'm feeling pretty good about it. I'm thinking, dang, this is nice and Disney's picking it up and awesome. And then, uh, I don't know, it's about two o'clock. I think things weren't supposed to get started until maybe six, five or whatever. And I thought, God, you really can't just sit here in this hotel room and be a dork. Maybe let's go over to Bloomingdale's. Yeah, that's it. That's not that far. And so I venture down to the lobby and I stick my head out the front door and I I don't know what I expected to see. Pirates, maybe. Goblins. I don't even know. Killers. I really don't know, but I was petrified. I'm just being honest. So I stick my head out and I head, I don't know which way. Anyway, I head right and I look down. I'm watching my feet the entire time and I don't stop. I don't hesitate. I go right, and then I turn left, and then I see Bloomingdale's, and I'm thinking, great, I'm there. And I go in the front door, and there's escalators, and I go up to the next floor, and I do a sweep, and then I go to the next floor and a sweep, and I think there were four, and I'm, I didn't look at anything. 
I really didn't. I didn't look at any salespeople, and I, I wander down. I make it to the top, and I think, okay, okay. And then I start thinking, now what? So I wander back down, and I think, I'm not going back the same way. I'm going to be brave, and I'm going to head the other way. So I head the other way. I make it around the corner, and I nearly bump into this short little man in a Gilligan type of fishing hat talking to a Asian young girl and two people who are, it looks like, getting his autograph. And lo and behold, they are getting his autograph. And I look closer, and it's Woody Allen and Soon Ying. And I'm like 10 feet, maybe 8 feet from them. And I think I've already had my New York moment. And I think, God, what an idiot. And I just walk on by and kind of big smile on my face, feeling proud of myself. I walk back to the hotel, go to my room, and I, I don't know. I don't even know. I shower. I just keep feeling this sort of prideful glow that, you know, I'm a big-time city traveler now. I've seen Woody Allen, who who literally is my, that's my New York moment. So I am very happy, but I'm also very And I had arranged to meet a guy that I had met on that Bahamas trip. Uh, He was a travel writer, a very young guy, lived in New York. We'd kind of kept up. And I said, hey, I'm coming to New York. Would you like to meet for drinks? Got this stupid thing in Central Park after the interviews. I don't care about that. And he's like, sure, you know, we're going to be at such and such bar. And so I wander over. I do the interviews, which, by the way, are at the Museum of Modern Art. MoMA and I don't know apparently it's right next door to Central Park or something and we do these interviews and David Ogden Steer is there and several other and the interviews go fine but they go long they go quite a bit long and it looks like I'm not going to be able to hook up with my friend and so I'm thinking oh good great I get room service back at the hotel room awesome another $60 New York meal good for me And I happened to have sat next to a guy named Jackie Cooper, who is from Orlando, I think. Yeah, Jackie Cooper. Not that Jackie Cooper, but that was his name. Very nice guy. We we ended up on several junkets together. Super nice guy. I really like. And he says, come on, go to Central Park. It'll be great. I'm like, oh, what else? You know, I mean, whatever. Now, again, this is a junket. And they said, we're going to have dinner in the park. And I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee, so in my mind, it's going to be a box lunch with a uh, tuna on rye or a chicken on rye or, a, you know, roast beef on rye, a bag of Lay's potato chips, and a can of Coca-Cola. And I, was, I really wasn't very fired up about that, sitting on a grass in the park with a box lunch. But he convinced me. He said, come on, it'll be great. So we walk, literally, from MoMA. Central Park and we go in and there's this giant white tent or maybe three I don't know it's a bunch I now know it was Disney and there's all these guys in chef's caps and their toques I think they're called toques I don't know how you pronounce it anyway the big chef's hats they got again the big tents there's tables there's candle lighting uh, there's guys cutting roast beef at stations there's shrimp any anything you could think of was available any cocktail whatever And so I get my plate and I randomly choose a six top table. Again, linen covered. I sit down, Jackie joins us. And so now it's introduction time and reach out and turns out the three people, pretty sure there were three. The one guy was the producer and the other two were the on-air talent for the South African version of Entertainment Tonight at that time, which was interesting enough, but... 
the female talent, the co-host, happened to be the niece of Nelson Mandela. And so I'm sitting there with this plate of, I'm sure I got shrimp and probably I got whatever exotic you could get. I'm sure I probably got a Crown Royal or a Heineken. I think I got a Heineken. Sitting at this table and I'm thinking, you almost went back to a boring hotel room to watch cable television and you would have missed this. And we had a fascinating conversation and it was unbelievable. And I remember sitting on the bus ride back, the sun was going down and we're driving into, I don't even know, New York something. <laughs> I just remember thinking, never again, never again will I pass up an opportunity. Pretty doggone incredible. And it was a, it was a real lesson for me about being a big sissy. The next day, uh, I had arranged, this is, again, this tells you what a doofus. So the only thing I was interested in at that time uh, was cigars. And Cigar Aficionado, I knew, was published out of New York. And for some reason, I don't even know why, I established some sort of connection or with the associate publisher who was very nice, a very nice woman. I should look up her name because she was very nice. I knew I only had about 36 hours in New York, so I knew, you know, doing the whole sightseeing thing was not going to be an option. So I thought, ah, I, I guess I looked up the addresses because cigar aficionados offices were not that far from where I was going to be staying. So I reached out and said, I'd love to do a tour of the office. And she was like, sure, come on by. And she was very, very nice. So the next day I got a cab and again, you know, Mr. New York, it was probably 10 blocks. It wasn't much, but I went in and she was very nice and gave me the tour. And when I got back, I thought, Again, now I'm feeling froggy, so I thought, I'm going to go for a walk. Uh, I think I went through the Tr Trump Towers. I'm pretty sure I went under the Trump Tower or whatever that arch is, whatever. So it, it gave me some confidence, and I thought, I'm going to get out. And I did. I went for a walk, and I left the hotel, and I just was kind of wondering. And I made a left, and all of a sudden, I saw Tiffany's, and I thought, wow, you're an idiot. You're in the high rent district. You're sitting here thinking you're in, I don't even know. I literally thought I was going to be mugged at every corner. And I thought there's Tiffany's. And so I, I wandered in there and I thought this would be a nice place to get something for my wife. I'm looking around and there's not a thing, you know, under a million dollars. I'm exaggerating, but whatever. So I finally catch the eye of one of the clerks and I said, I'd like to get something for my wife, but I don't know what, or my girlfriend, I don't know what. And she said, anything in a blue box is always appropriate. And I just remember that being one of the greatest lines ever. And I ended up finding a nice gift and uh, thinking, what, what an idiot, you know, here I am. I'm, <laughs> I'm in probably one of the wealthiest uh, districts blocks, whatever you want to call it, in the entire world. Well, I learned from it. I never, I never made those sort of silly assumptions ever again. So it was a lot of fun and quite an experience. So that's one of those moments. So anyway, when, I, when my son Carson uh, was probably in first or second grade, I picked him up from uh, the, the local elementary school, Catholic elementary school where he attended. He got in the car as he always did, locked himself in, you know, seatbelt, whatever. It's about a three mile, 10 minute 
maybe, you know, give or take traffic run. And he immediately said, uh, Dad, do you know, can you, do you know where Thunder comes from? Well, Bill Nye, the science guy, was the, you know, one of the big shows at the time. And, and uh, we watched that a lot, liked it. And, you know, I, I saw this as an opportunity. Hey, I get to show him how smart Dad is. So for the next, whatever, 10 minutes, uh, three-mile ride, I I let him have it. You know, cumulus clouds, the whole weather systems coming together and on and on and on. He never said a word. He kept looking at me, never made a face, never tried to interrupt, never raised a finger so much as anything. We pulled into the driveway, and I was really feeling good about myself. I was like, man, that's good parenting right there. And he looked at me, and he was like, uh, it was a joke. It's the angels when they're bowling. And I just, uh, we both sort of got out of the car and never spoke of it ever since. But uh, I've never, I've never forgotten that moment because I was so proud of myself and he, he was so pleasant. But uh, it was a funny story and I, I, and it's one of my favorites because I can still see his face in his little blue shorts and blue shirt <laughs> looking People at me. People are strange. People get red. People. Who need people?